0: Welcome back to the Bridge Builder Podcast, an initiative of the Minnesota Catholic Conference. In each episode of the Bridge Builder, we help you connect your faith into public life. We know that politics is one of the highest forms of charity because it serves the common good. And this is a great way to bring your faith into deeper reflection about our role and responsibility as disciples and faithful citizens. I'm Jason Adkins, Executive Director of the Minnesota Catholic Conference, and joining me in studio today is my co-host, Rachel Herbeck, our Minnesota Catholic Conference Outreach and Policy Coordinator.
1: I feel like I say this every time, but we have another great show. Every time we have we have great guests, so I'm excited for today's guests and for today's show.
0: Indeed, indeed. A big thank you, first of all, to Relevant Radio 1330 AM for use of their recording studio here in beautiful Golden Valley, Minnesota. And to our sponsor for this uh, edition of the podcast, the State Minnesota State Council of the Knights of Columbus, the Knights of Columbus, are building the domestic church. In today's podcast, we're talking about the ways in which abortion advocates in Western cultures are imposing their beliefs on pro-life cultures, such as those in Africa. Uh, we'll talk t- uh, to Ob- Obianaju Ekocha uh, about her book, Target Africa and Ideological Colonization, a term that Pope Francis keeps bringing up over and over and has been discussed even today at the Youth Synod in Rome. Then, in our classic Catholic social teaching segment, we take a deep dive into the papal document of an, uh, soon to be Saint uh, Pope Saint Paul VI, *Populorum Progressio*, from 1967, an encyclical uh, on the development of all human peoples. What does it mean to foster integral human development? We'll also be providing practical tips in our bricklayer segment on how to put your faith into action. Rachel, let our listeners know what they'll hear in the Bricklayer segment today.
1: Yeah, if you've been listening at all, we've been talking about election season. And so we're going to talk about making sure you're registered to vote and how to exercise um, that important right. So we're going to talk about registering to vote coming up um, on November 6th.
0: And we finish out today's podcast, as usual, with a bit of sacred music, not performed by us, but by the incredible (laughs) voices from choirs around Minnesota. And now let's just jump in uh, to our guest, all the way from London, England. Uh, joining us is Obi Obianaju Ekocha, founder and president of Culture of Life Africa and author of Target Africa, a fantastic book. I've just read it out from Ignatius Press uh, this year, 2018. Um, uh, Uju is a professional in the bioethics and biomedical sciences and she has also become a global advocate for the unborn and the defense of peoples, particularly the pro-life culture in Africa. We are blessed to have Uju with us today. Welcome, Uju.
2: Thank you, Jason, for having me on. Hi, Rachel. Hi. (laughs) Thank you so much. Yeah, thanks. I'm glad to be here. glad to be here with both of you.
0: Wonderful. Well, we're blessed to speak with you today. Uh, You are a fascinating person and really have become a leader globally uh, in defense of life and against ideological colonization. Tell us first a little bit about yourself and how you became engaged as an advocate for the unborn and for justice in Africa.
2: Great. So I was uh, born in Nigeria in a normal Nigerian family. You know, I'm one of six and I'm the youngest of the family. So uh, back in 2006, you know, that's what, 12 years ago now, I came to the United Kingdom to uh, do my master's, to further my education, to seek a career in sciences. As you had mentioned earlier, I'm a biomedical scientist. So I had absolutely uh, no idea what was going on uh, in the pro-life battle coming from Nigeria. By the way, in case anyone wonders, I came from a country that does not have legal abortion. And it's it's not that we don't know what abortion is. We know what abortion is, but abortion always means a bad thing. You know, it's like saying, you know, human trafficking or slavery, right? Once you mention it, it's a bad thing. So I came from a pro-life country, at least by law, that anyone doing abortion is doing it clandestinely and it's terrible. It's against the law. Um, So came in here to the U.K., I started my career, started my education, I was doing well and happy, if you must know, until uh, in 2012, I was watching the television mm-hmm. one day and something happened to change my entire worldview, my life, and the trajectory, I'd say, of my life, in a sense of speaking. And that was an interview that I watched um, of Melinda Gates, the wife of Stuart Gates, uh, speaking about her latest project at this time, this was back in 2012, she was going to launch a massive contraception project that was particularly targeted to Africa and other parts of the developing world, but mainly African nations. And she was talking about this, like it was something that the Africans really wanted. It was something they desired. we were asking for it. So I was so upset as an African girl, you know, who had, uh, had like straddling both worlds. I knew everything to be known about Africa because I was raised in Africa, grew into adulthood, worked in Africa before I came to Europe. And also at that point, I had seen quite what was going on in Europe and I could make a comparison. So I I did the most natural thing that came to me, which was to write uh, something like an article to say why she shouldn't do that. That became a 2000 worded essay that everybody now knows and talks about as the open letter to Melinda Gates. That's really what launched me into the pro-life world. Because following that, the letter went viral. It was published in different languages by different people, including the Vatican, uh, and then I I was being called in different places to kind of explain myself, you know, and I, I just re- got really, really involved in pro-life uh, work, but not in, in the sense that most people are used to uh, seeing pro-life uh, advocates work. I started working... On a bridge, so this was the bridge between Western countries and African countries. So I was doing a lot of, I started doing a lot of writing uh, to explain to the world really where the Africans are and what the situation in African countries and why and how the Africans don't want any of, you know, any of things like abortion, contraception, things that were coming particularly from the West, uh, moral issues that that in Africa we see as terrible things, but they were still being pushed on us at least from how I was seeing it, by international communities, by, you know, uh, uh, some Western leaders. At that time, it was uh, President Barack Obama, who was the president of the United States. But but people of different administrations, of course, have done all kinds of things towards Africa that I felt um, shouldn't be. So that's really how I got involved uh, more Mm -hmm. and more, uh, just writing, speaking out. uh, And just most recently now on Twitter, uh, just doing a lot of speaking out there.
1: Wow, that's amazing. That's really an amazing yeah. story. One thing you mentioned that stuck out to me was just this phrase that you said a couple of times of they were trying to impose um, things on Africans that Africans actually didn't want. Um, and I think that's a really interesting point. And I remember. When I was in college, I was working, interning briefly in DC, and one of my jobs was to track bills to find out where the aid money was going, the American aid money was going. And I remember having to go infiltrate and sit in this conference where they were talking about women's reproductive health in Latin America. And how the Mexican, especially in Mexico, they had told them, the women had told them that they didn't want abortion. And it was a strategy meeting on how to convince um, these women in Mexico that they should get abortions, you know. So I was shocked by that. And so talking about that idea really of, of especially using aid money to really um, implement American or Western ideas on people. And you're talking about specifically Africa. Can you explain a little more in depth kind of that process of ideological Absolutely. colonization?
2: Oh, Rachel, you have the half of it. You know, it is happening at this time as we speak. Mm -hmm. It is happening. Almost uh, everywhere where you find people gathering for international one thing or the other. So I'm speaking of places like the United Nations. You know, whenever people gather together and they say, we're doing this thing for development, listen closer. It's not all the time. Yes, there are people who are really uh, fighting to get water to communities that don't have drinking water in Africa or good health care, you know, real maternal health care or good education. But then I would tell you that more and more money is being appropriated now under the umbrella of aid. That's billions of dollars every year by individual Western nations. So Within, uh, like in America, you have the United States Agency for International Development (USAID), uh, which is a, a government agency which is supposed to be neutral at best. But then, when their money, you know, depends on who is in charge of what is going on or the policies, and that's why policies are very important. Uh, they could then appropriate that money, and they have done in the past into re-educating women, you know, in, in developing countries, telling them the stigmatization of abortion. These are things that you would see in proper conferences, they are destigmatizing abortion, they're telling women about the unmet need for contraception, (laughs) education, you know, sex education. They're big on that, the so-called comprehensive sexuality education, whereby all these things put together are now being handed over to the young people in African nations and young people in other parts of the developing world. But the problem with all of this, Rachel, is that they are so empowered because they're getting money from these Western nations. You know, United States, United Kingdom, all these EU countries, countries that have legal abortion and so feel that it should spread, you know, and feel that this kind of ideology should be in every nation, and they should sell it exactly as they sold it in the, you know, in all these Western countries, they should sell it to, in the same way to African nations. Um, It's happening at the United Nations, where they all gather together. It is also happening uh, at the the point where uh, people call themselves philanthropists, you know, you have the private philanthropic foundations like Gates, the Bill and Gates, uh, the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. They are doing a lot of things for education, but then we want to know exactly what, what do they see as education. Are they, are they thinking that telling African women more and more and teaching them and trying to get this whole idea of contraception to them, convincing them to accept contraception and abortion? Do they, is that what they're calling education? Are they going to tell us what they mean by health care? Do they mean reproductive sexual health? Healthcare, you know, things that again include abortion, contraception. Um, it's happening also with international um, organ- reproductive health organizations like International Planned Parenthood Federation, mm-hmm. like Maristops International, which is a British abortion organization, like DKT International, which is another uh, international abortion organization. So these organizations then stand in as the secondary circuit. So they, they, they get the money from Western nations or international communities or, or Philanthropic foundations, uh, like the Melinda Gates Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, as well as the Clinton Foundation, they get this money. It goes through abortion organizations like International Planned Parenthood Federation onto African communities. And these organizations, these organizations like IPPF and Maristos International, they are able to go into little African villages. I mean, the smallest rural communities, and right there where there is no oversight, there are no real regulations. They are putting down, you know. Uh, abortion clinics or you know all kinds of reproductive health practices they're doing mobile clinics it's terrible and it's so insidious because most times people don't see it all they see is just generally development work and when they put it in budgets like you know western countries budgets you see it as just development money when the united kingdom where i live when they do their national budget is not point seven percent of the national budget goes to development work but let's know what part of that money is actually going to promote abortion in african countries and to lobby african nations uh, to start legalizing abortion that is what is most important but they are uh, constantly doing it but people are not even aware of of you know a lot of the things happening and what they happen
0: mm-hmm. now Uji, you've got a, a your book Target Africa has a really nice foreword from Professor Robert George, um, yeah. and Professor George here in the, in the U.S. has highlighted how public the public discourse is dominated by what he calls a clash of orthodoxies, really two mm-hmm. worldviews, two uh, uh, two positions about the nature of the good, the nature of human life that are sort of all encompassing and comprehensive. And I think that goes to the heart of one of the points you make in your book. Uh, is that even though the facts tell us that the way to help nurture societies, are there are better ways than population control mechanisms, abortion, contraception, um, they still pursue these and choose these anyway. And you highlight, um, you know, nurturing population growth can actually nurture economic growth generally. Mm-hmm. And at the same time, uh, worries about urban density and urban population control might be combated best by supporting rural economic development. So tell us a little bit about how these policies, the contraceptive mentality, these aid dollars, are pursuing policies that aren't even necessarily, uh, not just they're ideologically wrong, but they're also not even really effective in sustaining healthy and flourishing societies.
2: Right. So with contraception, um, I work as a scientist, by the way. I mean, I still do work as a scientist. And the one thing that I find fascinating uh, is that A lot of times, you know, people are very careful, and even governments are very careful with what um, sort of drugs and pharmaceutical products come into their communities, right? If there's a particular medicine that is coming with so many side effects affecting people negatively, even if they... Are purported to help one's health, those drugs are usually, you know, struck down or, you know, people, the people are very careful with that. Governments are really careful with that, except one thing, contraceptives. Almost nobody cares about what happens to women in Africa when uh, people bring in, uh, you know, millions and millions of doses or, you know, or, or drugs, doses of drugs or devices into African communities where they people couldn't even go into um, hospitals or see doctors when they start to have side effects. And even if somebody tells us there's only like, you know, a small percentage, for example, 2%, who will suffer side effects, which we know it's small because we're reading medical papers, we're reading medical journals all the time. And we know that these things um, have, you know, they sometimes can be fatal for women, if not, if not, uh, if not treated. But I, Personally, I have seen going into African countries, into African villages, women who have been affected by concepts that they got for free. IUD they got for free from a British organization. But once they fix those things, they don't care about the women who get it. Nobody stands around. So there is the massive impact uh, that these... um, kinds of money diverted to contraception, the kind of terrible impact that they're having on the real health of African women. But there's also like a very big distraction from the, the real health issues. You know, for example, people say they're pushing contraception in order for them to to improve maternal care or to to help because of our maternal mortality, but I'll tell you something that, having worked in an Afri- in the African uh, healthcare system, I know that the, the at least a third of the reason, thirty percent of the deaths that occur from uh, you know maternal deaths that occur, it's usually because women bleed during during uh, delivery or after delivery, and there is just no blood. You know we don't have good blood services to take care of these women, to do blood transfusions. But I have never one time seen any international um, conference or summit on on, in, on improving blood services in African nations. And I go to the UN every year. But I see all these people gathering together for reproductive health, for abortion care, for, you know, all kinds of things, how to spread contraception, how to teach women about contraception. But no one ever talks about uh, a a major problem that the African countries are having and we're not we're not getting any better at it but it's like they don't even see it and they don't care even though it has been well recorded this is where the problem is coming from so as they're pushing it there is a terrible distraction um also from from what matters the most and also things like as you as you had mentioned earlier where i talk about um urbanization in some parts of africa and that's why when you watch tv and the show africa it might be like slums, uh but the snoms shouldn't be there the problem is that people are moving to very few cities in Nigeria there are only a, a couple of cities where people are living everybody else you know you know everywhere else I mean it's just empty <laughs> so it's just like there's almost like an underpopulation in in some of the rural areas and but then really massive populations move into places like Lagos you know Potako just few cities and and they they overburden those cities because there's only so much one city is capable of taking in terms of of population but then the people who are pushing these things the population control when they come to africa they go to these massive cities they take pictures and they make videos and they tell us africa is overpopulated but that is not true because we know uh, what population density is that is what is important it's not the number of people is the number of people sharing a particular you know square mile or or, or square kilometer and we know that The African countries are not overpopulated because we are watching the population density. For example, Nigeria has a lower population density than the United Kingdom. Um, But that's not what... A lot of Nigerians even don't know that. That's not what's in the news. They don't because they, when they go to Nigeria, they just want to show uh, people living together in tiny slum, you know, tiny houses in slums. But that that's in places where there is terrible urbanisation, terrible urban planning. Why don't they put in funds and resources into getting governments to making the rural areas more habitable for people, and they can go back and and improve those places? Because we have people that can work, you know, that can work to improve our economy, but that's not really what these people are planning for us, and that's not what, you know, they have in mind. All they want is just a drastic reduction in population.
1: Hmm. It's interesting because, you know, as you're talking and these ideas, you um are not just disproved by other opinions, but real facts, you know, what's going on in Africa, what's going on in all these different places, it's just an ignoring of facts. And so I think what we find a lot of times in these ideological conversations, particularly with the contraceptive mentality and the abortive mentality is just, um, it's pretty illogical, um, you know, and it seems that everything is kind of sacrificed, even logic and facts are sacrificed mm-hmm. on the altar of, of abortion and this type of freedom. And so what do you see, Kind of a two-part question. One, what do you see as kind of the spiritual undertones um, of this battle, and what's happening um, not only in Africa and world, but worldwide? And part two of that is kind of how does your how does your faith sustain your advocacy, you know, and what you're doing?
2: Yeah. So the. The um spiritual undertone, what is you know, from a spiritual perspective now, we've spoken about science and we've given facts, but again, yes, you're right, there is a spiritual undertone and this is what it is. There is this secularization that is happening um in, in Western countries. We know that, we see that, you know, the even though yes there's a lot of christians for example in the united states a lot of christians in the united kingdom but more and more they are trying to remove all power you know from people who practice religion from people who are devout, they are uh, trying to tell us that, uh, you know, as a Christian or as a devout Catholic, you cannot be that and still be like a senator or a judge or, you know, whatever, Mm -hmm. you know, that we see that in in the West. And it is really with this idea of, of secularization, of, you know, God is not that important, faith is not that important, it should be in the private space, you should take it into your room and practice it there, it shouldn't be public. They're bringing it to Africa, because what What we see, even though they're not, you know, they're not the ones who call the shots, but we see them completely de-emphasizing faith, which is most important to the African people. The Africans are like the most religious people that I know, that (laughs) people are so um, devout in whatever faith they are practicing. But the Africans like to be connected to God, you know, one way or the other. Mm -hmm. So faith and family is so important. It is so central to the African woman, to the African man. It's you know, God, everything we do, it's God. God is not removed from from the public square. Um, but the donors um, completely separate themselves from that. And they, they also just come in and, and they, they tend to forget or they, they try to kind of eclipse this all important thing to the African, which is the faith. So faith, of course, comes hand in hand, comes hand in hand with morals. So, for example, they go to children's schools. In Africa, where they don't tell parents, because they're coming through UNICEF, Mm -hmm. the schools are open to them, and these people walk into the schools and they start teaching children about sex, um, comprehensive sexuality education, they're very graphic, they're very, you know, they're talking about sex as if it has nothing to do with with love, and of course, nothing to do with marriage. Mm -hmm. But the African parent, the average African parent, let me say, wants a child to to think of sex as something that comes hand in hand with marriage, you see what I mean. So yeah. this is where uh, the the fact that the the our donors are coming in. Um, Against faith, even, even you know, or, or just completely without faith at best. They're coming without faith to us. And so they don't care about our faith. They don't care about people's morals uh, and moral views and moral values. And they're trying to push down these things like it's the health care. You know, they tell us things like it's evidence based. So, you know, they, we, they, we don't want African children to be talking about abstinence, mm-hmm. um, unfortunately, because they have all the money. Yes, they can make a lot of difference. If the UNICEF is sending people into schools and they're coming with millions of dollars in projects and these African schools are open to them, then they're getting access and they're teaching our children. They're teaching our children about sex in a way um, that is is completely um, opposed to our faith and moral views and values. Um, then, you talked about my work. What, what was the question again about my work? Sorry, f- I forgot. How um, to sustain...
1: Yeah, just how your, your personal faith sustains you and it informs Good, your advocacy. Yeah.
2: How, okay, so, <laughs> of course, um, I I am a Catholic, and I don't think that's that's a hidden fact. A lot of people know <laughs> that about me, even though um, many people who follow my work, um, uh, uh, some of them are non-Catholics, and I also have worked with non-Catholics on different issues in the past. Uh, but of course, my faith is, is key and central to the work I do. Um, the, the reason I started doing this work in the first place was um, is is because of how i felt about what melinda gates was doing as an african who had had education western education and i knew what was what and i knew how to compare the difference but but the what i think what has sustained me and what has continued to propel me is not just that anger you know it's not just that annoyance over what melinda gates was doing but it's the fact that i see that you know i see the the gospel of life i i have uh, uh, you know i'm trying to to uh, just trying to reconcile what i know from the point of view of my- my faith, from faith and morals, um, and also just to see that, uh, it, it, you know, even, even at points when I'm challenged and, and the, the work is, is tasking, more tasking than ever, or at points when it gets difficult, uh, it's still my prayer, you know, it's still the fact that I can go to the church and pray, or, or ask a priest to pray for me, or, you know, if I'm having difficulties, I go for spiritual direction. So all of the things that... I have come to learn that we need uh, to foil the work, to sustain the work. And, you know, a lot of of times as well, just working in this field can be very depressing, right? So it's the faith that keeps one going. And and, uh, sometimes you see people who declare you a real enemy. When we go to the United Nations, sometimes you see things that, that... I would say, uh, you know, I would even class like as demonic. We have seen some of these things that are that are so terrible. You know that this, you know, there are evil forces at work here. Um, at uh, several times, I have found myself just before the Blessed Sacrament, uh, whipping There's a, a, a church, which is you know just a few blocks away from the United Nations. Um, one time, I was in a terrible meeting at the UN. I just ran out. This particular day, I ran out because I found myself next thing at this church on the 47th Street. This Catholic. Church and I was just lying down on the pew there, weeping, weeping before before our Lord at the Blessed Sacrament. Mm. So uh, afterwards, I was able to go back to the U.N. and continue what I was doing. But imagine if I didn't have that—you know—where will I go? Who to whom will I go? And we see yeah. a lot of these things from time to time when uh, an African, a new African country starts to fight to to legalize abortion because somebody has bribed some other person, and you know, some Western person is trying to have some influence. Uh, you know, again, it's the fate that that keeps one going, because we have fought a lot of those battles. Uh, We have won many of those battles, thanks be to God. So it's just the the constant prayer, uh, the prayers that I I take recourse in, and also the fact that a lot of people, I know that a lot of people are praying around me, and a lot of people are praying for this work, and for the cause, you know, for the cause of the Gospel of Life as well. So lots of priests, lots of African uh, religious sisters, lots of bishops as well. So it's the faith is quite key and central in keeping this
0: work going. Uji, you've been tremendously generous with your time today, uh, calling us in from London. I've just got one really brief question as we wrap up here. Uh, What should our listeners know about fighting ideological colonization? How can they become a part of this great conversation and this important battle to build a gospel of life? What are, you know, two practical things they can do?
2: Right. The first one is that people in America, or even Other places where, you know, other Western nations, let me just put it that way, but particularly people in America should know that uh, their country and their tax money is what has kept the ideological neocolonization going. You should know that the United States Agency for International Development is capable of um, of pushing abortion into an African country or, or you know comprehensive sexuality education into an African country. One thing that people can do, which will be very useful. As taxpayers, as the United States taxpayers, find out where your money is going and begin to ask the right questions, and begin to, to speak out against it. Because as an American, you have the right to tell your government that you don't want you don't want your money used to export of, uh, abortion overseas. So you can fight that battle even from the point that as taxpayers, your money shouldn't be going um, into objectionable projects, especially where the people. Have an axe for it. Where you know, in the, all these recipient countries, they have an axe for it. And secondly, too, is to please get informed. I would say everyone should read my book, Target Africa. But that's like a non-point that everyone should know to read my book, Target Africa. <laughs> they should read your book, Target <laughs> you Africa. Should, you should get informed. You should get informed about what is going because it's 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 uh, astonishing to know that the average person has absolutely. No- idea for example of what the mexico city policy which is the american Mm -hmm. policy that either allows the president you know that that allows the president to completely defund abortion organizations abroad what it has been what has been going on in america since uh, president reagan instituted it the fact that every time a a democrat president comes into office that they usually repeal it uh, president clinton repealed it and that meant that for those years that clinton was in power american taxpayers were paying for abortions overseas president obama did the same thing uh but since january of last year thank god that mexico city policy has come back um I- into place so i beg i beg you to get informed and know what is what uh, because in your name People do all kinds of things. You know, governments and government agencies are doing all sorts of things as we speak in African nations. I saw a massive billboard, several massive billboards, in fact, in Uganda when I went to Uganda a few years ago. And it was condom billboards. I mean, these billboards were all over the country. But when you look at the bottom of it, you would see who paid for that billboard to be, those billboards to be there. It said USAID, but you know what is, which is the United States Agency for International Development, but you know what is written just beneath that little logo, USAID, from, from the American people. So it's mm. from you, Jason, and it's from you, Rachel, and it's from you, whoever is if you if you if you are paying your taxes then you might be paying for a condom billboard in a Ugandan village that you don't even know about so please get informed and um, read books read you know read great websites uh, there are some organizations that have work um follow me on twitter as well because on twitter i do speak out when things happen uh, but just know you can you and i can actually uh, you know keep up this fight to ensure that the dignity of the human person is respected from womb to tomb, uh, as far as you know, as from as far as policies are concerned, as far as taxes tax monies are concerned, as far as development is concerned, you can do that and I can do that. And uh, but for us to do it, we have to get informed. Mm-hmm.
0: Your words cut to the heart, and we are grateful for your presence uh, on the podcast today, obianaju a Akocha, founder and president of Culture of Life Africa, and author of Target Africa, Ignatius. Press 2018. Uju, thanks for being with us. God bless you and all of your work.
2: Thank you, you. God bless you. Thanks for having me
0: on. Take care. Bye-bye. And we're back for our segment on Classic Catholic Social Teaching and during this segment we try to identify and discuss documents that have some timeliness if there's an an important anniversary uh, that merits reflection we know in the church sometimes documents can be 40 years old and really no one has read them and it takes 40 years or even multiple generations before we see the wisdom uh, in a document The, the prophets often are not accepted in their own age and so these documents have to be digested for future generations to receive and embrace and consider more deeply this Segment. We have a document uh, that's timely in the sense that in just a couple of days, we're recording here in October, in a couple of days, uh, Pope St. Paul VI, Pope Paul VI, will be elevated uh, as a saint of the Catholic Church officially. And he, we've t- talked about one of his other documents, Humanae Vitae, during this segment. Today we want to look at another document that's 51 years old, 1967, Populorum Progressio a document on the development, the integral human development of all peoples, and certainly a timely document and relevant in light of our discussion just a moment ago with Uju, a coach of Culture of Life Africa. Um, Really, uh, you could say a manifesto for how to look at uh, economic development, economic aid from a global perspective. Rachel, what were your thoughts upon encountering this document, and especially in light of what Uju was saying?
1: Yeah, yeah, I mean— just it fits so perfectly with the conversation that we just had with uju and one thing that um pope paul VI kind of lays out at the beginning that i love that he frames it in this way is really something that the church you know we've heard this from, from pope francis regarding integral ecology but really Um, how all the pieces play together to um, really develop man in a way that elevates him, not only in society so that he can thrive, but ultimately so that he can get to heaven. And so really, even these super practical things of how do we develop nations economically, how um, do we help other nations? really. The fundamental question is, how are we um, helping human dignity thrive? You know, and that's all I love that that's always the central question for the church, even in the context of these seemingly super practical things like economics or development.
0: So, Pope, uh, Pope Paul VI talks about an authentic humanism, right? A theme that really uh, uh, gained greater. Uh, conversation, greater relevance, uh, especially after World War II, when there was such an assault on the dignity of the human person's genocides, Mm -hmm. uh, more genocides in other parts of the world, and uh, the Church really explored and has been exploring, um, going back to thinkers like Jacques Maritain, who was close to Pope Paul VI, but certainly that was a theme that Pope John Paul II embraced as well, an authentic humanism, but one rooted in the supernatural destiny Mm -hmm. of the human person, and then that's highlighted over and over. We've talked about Oscar Romero, who's being canonized the same day Mm -hmm. as Pope Paul VI, and even though there's a a deep, deep thirst for justice, a deep um, discussion of distributive justice and um, the role of good public policy, there's always an eye, though, toward the person's supernatural destiny, and I think that comes out really richly, uh, whether you're talking about um, the works of Romero um, and the writings of Oscar Romero at this time, but also in this document from Pope Paul VI highlighting the supernatural destiny of the human person and policies rooted in protecting that dignity of the human person and helping he or she find ultimately that supernatural beatitude with God.
1: Mm-hmm. And we can't really have, you know, the understanding that we can't know policies that don't help us get there and don't foster that supernatural destiny really ultimately will fail even in thriving on earth, you know, because it's a misunderstanding of who we are. Um, and I think... You know, Uju is pointing this out of kind of the, the conflict between what people in Africa, kind of what their values are and Western cultures. And Pope the Six points that out here in regards to, you know, when countries are developing, there's that conflict um, between generations, which I thought was really interesting of, you know, older generations in a lot of these countries are very family oriented or they're very, they want to keep the faith, they want to keep um, their cultural norms are very important to them and very important to their identity. And then it's either the younger generations that don't want that, or as Uju was talking about, outside forces that have financial power that don't want that either and want to change that. And so there's a conflict there. And then we have to ask the question, is that really contributing to true flourishing and true, true development?
0: There really is a sense that worldview is being imposed on people as Mm -hmm. a, you know, one particular conception of the good right right Um, that globalization that liberal democracy represented in one phrase the end of history and it was the job of developed nations to in fact promote both liberal democracy and economic uh, globalization free trade uh, upon everyone else now there's lots of benefits of free trade uh, in the sense that different nations often lack certain resources and trade can help promote human flourishing Mm -hmm. but economic globalization or material well-being as an end in itself or when coupled with um, the contraceptive mentality mm-hmm. um, fewer people is better people not as persons endowed with inherent dignity but people who are problems to be solved who right. inhibit a healthy globalization mm-hmm. and pope all the six highlight that fair highlights that fair trade or uh, free trade excuse me is not enough what we need of course is fair trade one that Uh, promotes the the well-being of nations and the dignity of the human person so again as pope francis talks about in laudato si and a theme we've touched on over and over the technocratic paradigm is not enough it's not about simply it's not a simple a matter of economics um, or public policy but what we really need is a true humanism rooted in the person's supernatural destiny
1: Mm mm-hmm and I also really liked how, like how he points out, um, I can't find the specific quote off the top of my head, but he talks about the Catholic's role in all of this, and I love, and even the Christian's role, I love how he brings that together at the end, because um, we can sometimes separate ourselves from these problems, or even sometimes think, oh, well, that's a social justice problem and not a spiritual problem, and I am i can't get involved in that, but really what our responsibility is to help um, foster this authentic humanism and to have a concern, um, for these other nations and help them but to to walk that line it's a hard line between kind of you know on one side imperialism of saying we know what's best for you um versus kind of you know the old saying of teaching teaching a man to fish or how do we help them use their resources to develop um, a country that will help them thrive and so I really like how he brings the responsibility back on us too just because it's people that we can't see or that's not in our main worldview right in front of us that doesn't take us away from being responsible to them as our brothers and sisters
0: and to one of uju's points about solidarity right Mm -hmm, and and being informed solidarity really asks to be in solidarity with people from around the world as we are one human family uh, we need to be informed and we often talk about uh you know the fact that not everyone uh, can do everything we all can't you know be experts on international development but what we can do is think globally and act locally and that sounds like a trite bumper sticker phrase, but there's really a lot of truth in it that we have the power within our own spheres of influence, within our own corner of the vineyard to become informed about what's going on internationally. I mean, the story of U.S. tax dollars paying for contraception billboards in Uganda should get everyone thinking and contacting their congressperson and senator and letting them know that U.S. aid dollars are there for aid and development, not to get rid of Africans. Mm-hmm. Right. And that's a story that should stick with us, I think throughout these conversations. So we can think globally, but we can act locally. The first, of course, is being in conversation Mm -hmm. and being in relationship with our congresspersons about these important issues.
1: Yeah. And that's why I think the act locally part is so important, because I think people get overwhelmed when we think globally. Sometimes we can get overwhelmed of, oh, that's too, there's so many problems, that's too hard. I don't know what to do, you know, so... Then we get paralyzed and then do nothing. It's like, you know, when you have so many things to do on your to-do list for a day and then you end up doing none of them. (laughs) Um, That's what we can be like sometimes when we're thinking about these things. And so to have these larger ideas in mind, but then that's so important of how can I act in my community, even if it's on your, you know, kids' school council or, you know, things like that that are in your direct community or in your neighborhood even. Um, So thinking of those small ways um, to really act locally, and then one more quote that I just loved that kind of leads into this and connecting it to what Uju is talking about this gospel of life of how, you know, he talks about the role of the church um, is to use, you know, the vision that we have, the gospel that we have, to um, kind of scrutinize and interpret the signs of the times. So we don't use the signs of the times to interpret the gospel, right? It's the other way around. Right? We use the truth about who Jesus Christ is and who we are. To scrutinize the signs of the times and what's happening in our world instead of the signs of the times are informing what jesus has revealed to us
0: and that's exactly what going back to the very first point i made about prophets right yeah the prophets scrutinize the signs of the times through the lens of the gospel sometimes they're embraced and sometimes they're rejected Mm -hmm. Uh, more often than not uh, they're rejected and then only rediscovered years later and that's what we try to do with these with this segment is help people rediscover perhaps dust off documents that in many ways, uh, were prophetic at the time they were mm-hmm. written and remain so today, but it remain, it's up to us to rediscover them. So we're glad to bring uh, to you today Populorum Progressio 1967 from soon-to-be Pope St. Paul VI, certainly an important document when thinking about international issues, mm-hmm. uh, globalization, trade, and the dignity of human persons outside of our own borders.
1: Yeah, and if you look at this up, I think, and look through it, I think it's a really good testament of how practical the church is, you know, and how she really deals with these real issues on the ground and not just kind of like these 60,000-foot ideas, but really digs in deep to the details of life and how we do that.
0: And still having the the nimbleness, if that's even a word, or the flexibility to speak to issues in a global manner right, um, and provide the principles that people in local communities can put into action. So again, Mm -hmm. Populorum Progressio, 1967. Pope Paul VI will be back in a moment with our Bricklayer segment. It's time to vote in Minnesota, even though Election Day is November 6th. Voting has already begun. We are one of uh, a number of states that has early voting. Uh, What do you do to vote? How can you vote? You can register to vote. You can even register when you show up to the polls. Rachel, what's going on with voting and elections?
1: Yeah, so hopefully you all have been listening to our other podcast, you're avid listeners, and you've uh, you've been using our election resources and we've been talking about election season a lot. And now somehow we're already in mid-October um, and we will be w- when we're talking about this and we'll be releasing this um, in a couple of weeks and election day will be upon us. Um, and so you can still register. I actually know a lot of people who are Like, oh, well, I missed it or it's too close to the registration date, I guess I just won't do it. Um, If you go to the Secretary of State website, you can find all of the necessary information that you need. So if you have missed the voter registration deadline, you can still register to vote and cast a ballot at the same time during the in-person absentee voting period or on Election Day. So simply go to your your regular in-person absentee voting site or to your regular polling place to register and vote. And as I said, you can find out. Um, where that is. Um, If you go to the Secretary of State website, really simple and straightforward, you can find out a place. um, In 2016, I voted at a place that was not even a block from my house, so usually there's somewhere that's really close to where you are. Um, So I would make a point to do that because this is really important. Kind of Some of the stuff that we've been talking about is all leading up to this really practical way to make your voice heard, to make a difference in not only the governor race, but in the Minnesota House race, all the way to Attorney General or City Council, there's a lot of different things up for election. um, And you can still visit mncatholic.org forward slash election for resources to form your conscience and inform your vote. Um, It's a good idea to prepare all the way up to that moment that you cast your ballot.
0: And we have a link to the Secretary of State's website on Mm -hmm. that, mncatholic.org forward slash election. But you can link to it right from our homepage, mncatholic.org. Including a link to the Secretary of State's office, you can find out who's running mm-hmm. uh, in your in your district. And uh, really important to think about this year—not a presidential year—but mm-hmm. still plenty of important races, right. and particularly here in Minnesota, two U.S. senators up at the same time for election, mm-hmm. which rarely happens.
1: Yeah,
0: um, and the whole state house, mm-hmm. a number of statewide offices, the attorney general is a very contested race, and of course the one that's getting the headlines the governor's race between uh, Tim Walls and Jeff Jeff Johnson. Johnson,
1: Yeah. And this is a perfect practical way to do what we just talked about in our last segment, to think globally and act locally. Right. So even though it's not a presidential race um, and it doesn't sometimes I know it feels like, oh, it doesn't hold the same amount of weight. But really what makes a difference is what's happening in your local community and what's happening in your state. So this is a perfect way to, as we said, think globally and act locally.
0: And though we don't put out a voter guide specifically that documents every candidate's position on every issue. What we do do is provide a questionnaire uh, that you can submit to legislators and candidates and elected officials about their positions on the issue, so you can inform your vote mm-hmm. and transform your state.
1: Yeah, so you can. It's a can be a two pronged thing because you can inform yourself uh, on what your candidates thinking, where your candidates at, but then also it begins a relationship with your candidates. Reaching out and sending that questionnaire, um, it shows the candidate that you're you can be a resource and that you're interested. Um, and kind of taking that extra step more than most constituents um, in the district do. So it informs you, but then it also begins a really positive relationship with the candidates.
0: And a relationship that you can continue after the election at Catholics of the Capitol 2019. Uh, registration is now open for Catholics of the Capitol 2019, February 19th, 2019 to Mark your calendar. Check out the great lineup of speakers and the important opportunities at Catholics of the Capitol to continue the relationship with your legislator People can register at Catholics at the Capitol.org. Register early because space is mm-hmm. limited.
1: Don't put off your registration.
0: Catch the next episode of our podcast on SoundCloud. Join us on Facebook at MN Catholic, on Twitter at MN Catholic C-O-N F, and check out our YouTube channel. We're grateful uh, for your listenership and for being with us today. Again, a big thank you to Relevant Radio, 1330 AM. And our sponsor for this episode of the podcast. The Knights of Columbus, Minnesota State Council, the Knights of Columbus are defending a culture of life and building the domestic church. Make sure you share this podcast with all of your friends and family. And what better way to end our podcast, as usual, uh, of great conversation than with great sacred music? Here's the Gregorian chant scola of St. John's Abbey and University performing Vos Qui Secuti estis," you who have followed, in honor of the Feast of St. Luke on October 18th. St. Luke, the writer of the Gospel and the Acts of the Apostles, is known as the beloved physician, and my experts tell me, uh, although he was a doctor, some people believe he was also born a slave. Here is the St. John's Abbey Choir performing Vos qui secuti estis. Thanks for listening. God bless you.